Scripture reading today is from Luke chapter 15. As we begin a new sermon series, we'll be uh, walking through a journey of mercy. And um, the story we're going to look at today is Luke chapter 15. Not the entire chapter, but from 11 to 32. So if you have your Bible with you, please open up your Bible. Turn on your app. Let the glow of the Bible app warms your face and your heart as you receive God's word. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was looking to be fed with the pots and the pigs that ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best rope, put it on him and put a rein on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fen calf and killed it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for your word. Lord, as we enter this new, begin this new sermon series, God, speak to us. Prepare our hearts to receive your word, the gift, the sweetness of your word, and let that be a challenge for us as we receive it, that it will not just stay in our hearts, but that it will move us to our hands and our feet so that we can be agents, ministers of mercy for you. So God, would you speak through my vocal cord? Would you think through my mind? Would you, uh, would you capture the thoughts that you want us to understand and know today? May the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable, acceptable to you. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Get glory in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I mentioned that we are beginning a new series called The Mercy Journey. I want to explain to us why I chose to uh, enter this new series. And there are two reasons. One reason is simply this, that we live in a Kairos moment. In a Kairos moment. What I mean by that is this. There are two words in the original language, Greek, that captures time. One is chronos. It's kind of like chronos is the actual time, like 2.30, 1.30. I don't know what time it is, 10.30. 11 o'clock, that's the chronos time. But then there's another term that the Bible used to, to describe time. It is the, the word kairos. It means the moment, a special moment, a, a definite uh, moment in time. So to give you an example, uh, my son was born uh, October, 17, no, October 17, 2010. And so he was born around 4.30 in the afternoon. That's the chronos time. But Kairos is, has nothing to do with that. It's just the fact that he was born. That special moment, the first time I, I saw my son and realized that, oh no, I'm a father now. That is the special moment that the Kairos is referring to. And I believe we live in a Kairos moment. If you just turn on the news, open up your, your phone and look at the news, you see we live in a very volatile, anxious skeptical, 
broken, divided world. I mean, one spin of the uh, of the globe, you will see that there there are hunger issues in Sierra Leone, human trafficking in Thailand, murders in Mexico. Here in America, we wrestle with police brutality, with racism in in overseas, not only here locally but globally. In overseas, in Hong Kong, people are fighting for justice, for for freedom. And so we see all over the world, COVID nineteen is is happening. We live in a very broken world. And we as believers, I believe, have a very special moment, a Kairos moment to step into that and not just be messenger, people who just speak truth, but we get to be ministers of mercy. That we can act upon what we know to be true and go live merciful lives among those who are broken. So our intent of this series is not just to prescribe to you exactly in detail what you must do. Because what we're going to not, I'm unable to do is tell you exactly what you need to do. But more importantly, what you need to do is that you actually do something. That is the intent of this series, that you will capture this, take advantage of this Kairos moment and live in such a way and do something for the name of Jesus Christ and to bless those who are broken around us. So that's the first reason. The second reason is this, that hopefully through this series, you have a more robust, a more complete understanding of the gospel. Most of us who live in a very relatively conservative, um, evangelical uh, environment, I think we are great at understanding and, and, and lifting up the greatness of God. I have my fair share of reading uh, systematic theology books, And yet when I go through those books, there are very few sentences or perhaps even a a, a book with thousands of uh, uh, thousands of pages only have a paragraph regarding the mercy of God. I believe that those of us who are concerned has a way of sometimes thinking too highly of God and forgetting that that same high view of God ought to move us to do something with the truth that we believe it to be the gospel. And I think many of the times we fall into mistakes of just doing it by just throwing money at a problem. Nothing wrong with giving money. We need resources to do ministry. But I doubt that that will be the last thing that God is calling us to do. Just throw money at a problem. But not only that, I think for those of us perhaps who are more, 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 more energized to do something, and I'm super encouraged. I, I, I look at the, the social media of our, our, our some of you, yours, and and in in our country, there are so many people who have the burden, the the the, the energy to want to fight for injustice. And I think that's a great thing. But but one thing I would like for us, to, if you happen to be that, that uh, a particular younger generation, if you feel that way, what I would like for, for us to, to learn from this series is this. That your reaction, your action is more than just a response, an emotional response to what's going on in the world. That your reaction will actually be rooted in the completeness, the robust understanding of the gospel. That you will do actions of mercy because you believe in a God of mercy. And also because you have been saved by this God of mercy. And therefore, that will be the foundation, biblical foundation for you to live a life of mercy. You know what? In, in, the, in the Bible, the word mercy or merciful is one of the first descriptions that God often used to describe to people. See, mercy is central to who God is because sin is central to who I am, who you are as human being. I just want to run through a couple of verses for you. Psalm chapter uh, 103, verse 8 says this, The Lord is merciful and gracious. Notice that's the first description that God has for himself. He's merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Lamentations 3.22, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases his mercies. Never come to an end. And before his people who have, whom he had led out of Egypt, he said this, The Lord passes before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. See, our God is a God of mercy. And that is the reason why we are embarking on this four-week journey what I call the journey of mercy. 
Because I believe every one of us as believers and followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to be on this journey. But it got to start from our hearts to our family, to our churches, and then to the community and to the rest of the world. That journey are not an option for each one of us. We are not called to be the cul-de-sac of mercy as we receive mercy from God. We are supposed to be dispenser of mercy. But here's the big idea of today's message is that we cannot dispense and show and act upon mercy without first receiving mercy. We cannot give mercy if we never experience and receive mercy. In fact, we, I would argue that we need to be daily receiving the mercy of God and remember what God has done for us so that we can go ahead and, and continue to serve those around us who are broken and least and show acts of mercy to them. And that is why we're going to begin our series in a very familiar story to us. If you're a part of our church, we often say it this way, that we need to, we often make a habit of preaching the gospel to ourselves. And that's what this message is going to be. I'm going to preach this gospel to myself today through this Bible passage. And I'm going to do the same thing for you. Because we have a tendency to forget this beautiful story of mercy that God has given to us. Story is very well-known for many people. In fact, there's a great painting by Rembrandt called The Return of the Prodigal Son. The passage we look at today is from Luke chapter 15, a familiar story, but I, I pray that you will not let that familiarity breed contempt in your life, that it will, it will harden your soul. God, I've heard that story, but that you will lay before God and say, God, what do you want to teach me about this, uh, about yourself and your mercy through this story? The story is known as the story of uh, the parable of the prodigal son. And we see the gospel, the good news of the gospel captured perfectly in here. That we are lost, we're guilty of sin, and we're in desperate need of mercy. And all the while, when we are not deserving of mercy, we can't do anything for ourselves, we have a father who waits patiently for us to return and to return home, and he will embrace us. That is the beauty of the gospel. So there are two simple truths that we look at here from this passage that will paint the picture for us of what mercy looks like. Two simple yet profound truths, uh, two truths that we often overlooked and understated, under, uh, underestimated, that perhaps the, today that God will reveal to us again to warm our hearts back to this familiar story of mercy. So if you have your Bible, let's turn to chapter 15 of Luke. The first truth we see here is the utter rebellion of man. The first picture of mercy begins with an utter rebellion of man. The, the boy, the son, the younger brother was utterly rebellious and he was deserving of being excluded of the family. Here's what it says in Luke chapter 15, verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, Jesus, giving a parable, a lesson of sort, uh, a story to teach with a point. And Jesus says this, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of your property and is coming to me. And, he, and so the father divided his property between them. And verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. I think when we look at this, I think immediately we see what is wrong with his son. We can see that he is greedy. We can see that he, he lived recklessly in sin. But I want to show, I want to encourage you to see, point to you, to, to notice that the greatest of sin that he has done is actually not just being greedy, not just reckless living. The biggest sin that he's committed is actually rebellion against his father. Rebellion is actually his biggest issue. It's not just he's greedy. It's not just because he, he lived his life loosely. But his rebellion against his own father is actually the biggest thing that he has against himself. You see, when the son said, Father, give me the share of property, what he's asking is not just extra stuff the father has. It is, the, it is his inheritance that his father has saved. Back then, they don't have a lot of cash, a lot of coins. So what happened is property, property means the, the piece of land that perhaps his father reserved for this son. 
Remember the story, there are two sons, one older, one younger. And, and God, uh, and Jesus here is saying that this, this story, that this father had prepared an inheritance for this son, only to be take, taken up when his father is dead. Which we know it will happen, but as of the reading of this story, as Jesus is telling them, the father is not yet dead. And so what the younger son really is asking is, uh, Dad, I know you're not dead yet, but I kind of wish that you may as well be dead so that I can get the money from you, get what I am supposed to, you, what you promised to give me so I can use it now. As a father, I can't imagine my son coming to me say that I wish you were dead. That type of rejection, that type of rebellion. Literally, the younger, the younger son is cursing his father to die. And he said, I don't want anything to do with you. I just want to take my money and run. And eventually, if I have my family, I don't even want him to come back to see you. I want to pretend that this relationship never happened. Just give me the money. Put yourself in the father's shoes. The, the rebellion, the rejection that he had felt. I wish that would never happen to any parents. And certainly, I would never want to see that happen to my own. And perhaps some of you are, many of you are not parents. You, you don't know how that feels. I think the closest thing I can think of is perhaps you've ever been in a relationship and you broke up. You know exactly how that feels, right? The girl shows up and says, I need to talk. Usually means bad news. And then they say, I need to talk. When you sit down to talk, and then the first line that comes out of her mouth is, it's not you, it's me. Translation, no, it's really you. And you know the next thing is, oh, it's not me, it's, it's, it's not you, it's really me. And then the next thing is, oh, we need, to, we need to break up. And you feel personally rejected so much that it was as if someone punched you right in the gut. That someone personally rejected you. That's how the father would have felt. And if you never had a, you never dated, maybe perhaps even your best friend turning on you, betraying you. That's the rebellion, that's the rejection that the father has experienced. Now, that's just a father, that's just a boyfriend, that's just a, 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 a best friend. But imagine the person that you rejected, rebelled against, is the king of the universe. The creator of all over all the world. Which is the reason why R.C. Sproul put it rightly in saying that our rebellions against God, he called it cosmic treason. The weight of your sin or your rebellion is proportional to the one whom you rebel against. So if you rebel against the greatest uh, God there in, in the universe, you are committing cosmic treason. It's that serious. And that was the problem of the youngest son. He rejected the father. I think in many ways we all like the, son, like the younger brother, isn't it? We tend to think we can live independently for our parents and certainly from God. We know better for our lives. But the story illustrates to us that something really profound is that rebellions will always lead us to destruction. That the trajectory of rebellion often starts out really good, but they always end in the ditch. That things always seem fun at first, but then eventually it goes to, to, to the hole that we never wanted to be in. Because that's exactly what happened to this prodigal son. Look at verse 13. Here's what it says. Not many days later, after he had sold his land, gathered all his money, this, this son gathered all he had, took a journey to a far country, as far away as he could from the father, from his family. And there, what did they say? He squandered his property in reckless living. Later on in the story, we know what that reckless living includes. No, it's not exhaustive, but for sure we know because in the response of the older brother, he says, but when this son of yours came, this is the older brother speaking, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fan calf for him? So we know this reckless living involved spending money, involved sleeping with women, Likely they're drinking, there's parties all going on. All of those things are going well and he's enjoying himself as far away as possible. It starts up in the right, as a high place. But we know in this story, and as we know in reality, the bottom fell out of him. Because the story continues. It says this, when he has spent everything. A severe famine arose in that country and then he began to be in need. Is it true? That there is always a famine around the corner. 
Something is not going to work in our lives. There's always a dish along the road of life. And because he has spent all that he had, he began to be in need. He went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pots that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Man, he was up high, enjoying his life, but the wind changed. No more money, no more friends, no more girls, no more party. He was all alone. He was so desperate that he hired himself out to work, only to find himself working in a place where no Jews want to work at, which is with pigs. Because they consider pigs to be unclean, dirty. Not only was he doing the, the lowest of all jobs, he was trying to get food. He, he was so hungry, he was so desperate, that he'd rather eat the pods with the pigs, but yet he got nothing. He's willing to eat the most filthy thing that he never put his mouth with when he was with his father. But because of the desperation, he does now. And yet nothing, nothing was given to him. Isn't that true? That's the trajectory of our sin and our rebelling to God. Always starts out great. It always ends in tragedy. There's this verse in Hebrews chapter 11, one of my favorite chapters of the Bible, the Hall of Fame of Faith. He has this little line in there that you are liable to miss if you don't pay attention. It says this in Hebrews chapter 11, speaking about Moses and, and, and commending him of his faith. Here's what it says, chapter 11, verse 25 in the book of Hebrews. It says this, Moses choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. The new came Jesus have it better. It says that there is pleasure in sin. What does that say? What it says is this. There are pleasure. You are, sin are meant to be pleasurable. Sins are meant to be fun. And if you are sinning, you're not having fun, you're not doing it correctly. I used to have a youth pastor that, that would t- always tell us that, oh, sin is not good for you. Sin is not fun. You should, you should stop doing it. But I'm thinking, well, no, like the Bible says sin is fun. That's why we're attracted to it in the first place. But the problem is never that sin is not fun, it's not pleasurable, it's not desirable. The problem with sin is that the word, the F word in there says is fleeting. It is temporary. It never lasts. It is good for a while. It starts right here, but it always, always ends down here. It is fleeting. Comes, to, comes today and gone tomorrow. And we know that to be the truth, isn't it? Perhaps you've never been in the dish like this, prodigal son. You didn't get that bad. But we know it's the same. We splurge. We binge watch. We do all sorts of stuff. We, 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 involve, we, we get addicted to alcohol. We get addicted to pornography. All of those things feels great at the time. Until later we experience the emptiness of it all. It is not a surprise that many celebrity struggles when they thought they, they rose to the climax of the career only to find that that was not what they signed up for. That they needed more. It's like a drug. They needed more to satisfy but only to find that it's getting more empty. More does not mean better. More things doesn't make us happier. Farther away from our Father, our God, does not mean that life is better. And the sad thing is many times by the time we get to that place, we realize how hopeless we are, how purposeless we are. And we look at ourselves knowing that we are not even worth anything. Because that's what the story tells us. Here is this prodigal son came to the bottom, the, the, the pit of his life, the valley of his life, realizing that all that he wanted it was not what he really needed. And the story continues in Luke chapter 15. He says this, when he came to himself, he came to his senses. He realized this, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your higher servants. See, by the time this son came to his senses, he realized he is not even deserving of his father's 
house anymore. He's not deserving to be called sons anymore. He knows that to be true. He, because he said, I'd rather be a servant than to be a son because I'm not worthy to be that son. Just to give you a little historical background here, scholars understood that back in those days in Judaism during that time, if you were a son like him and squandered your money off among the Gentiles, and if you returned home, what would happen to you is this, that there will be a village full of community people whom you rejected in the first place. They will bring out this chart. They will carry on this ceremony called the Kazaza ceremony. And what they will do is they will, as you enter into the town, what they will do is they will, as a community, will break that jar in front of you and they will start yelling and cursing you to tell you that you don't belong to this family anymore. You don't belong to our community anymore. And the son knew that. So he knew that he's not worthy of that. But even though he's not worthy, he'd rather be a servant than to be where he was. And you might be thinking, man, that sounds real harsh. I mean, everyone deserves a second chance, third chance, fourth chance, right? One of the most profound things I've observed through this whole uh, racism conversation, it's just a passion for justice in our country. Just a passion to see injustice, injustice being reversed. The calling for, for greater, greater justice in the world is so strong because innately we all know a wrong must be undone. A rebellion must be punished. And in the same way, if we feel so strongly against injustice in this world, against people, how much more should the King of Kings, the God of the universe, should hold contempt to those who rebel against Him? There will be no justice if He doesn't do it. That's why... As harshly as it sounds, those of us who have rebelled against are deservingly of the rightful judgment of God. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, tell, what, tell us what that rightful judgment ought to be. Speaking on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Here's the punishment, verse 9. That they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. I think it's easy to overlook that and think that, man, God doesn't need justice. I think your sense of fighting for justice ought to tell you something about God because the same God that created you had given you that passion for justice. So the Son knew that He is not worthy to be restored. The son knew, but yet he, he realized, if I can just only be a servant, if I can just go home and be a servant, that is better than what I have. And so that's what he did. So while we're utterly rebellious toward God himself, as the son was rebellious against his father, we see a, a better news. Because the, the picture of mercy does not stay in the darkness, but it contrasts with something much brighter. It contrasts with the, the news of light. That although we are, the simple truth is that we are utterly rebellious toward God, there is a truth, a reality that our God is unconditionally loving us and, well, and he's waiting and willing to wait for us to return home and give us mercy. That is the second truth that we have, the unconditional love of God because if, if we stay and the story stop right there, we will all follow through the path of destruction. And be eternally separated from God. But here's what the, the good news of the story is. Here's what the, the, the apex of what the gospel is. What mercy is about. It's because the son decided to go home. Even knowing that he could not be a part of the family. He would not have the status of a son anymore. He'd go home nevertheless. And if you notice here in, in the passage. He was rehearsing this script. That he would want to save his father. Asking for forgiveness. I've sinned against you. That treat me as a servant. And so I, as I imagine this story. This man with his son was just walking and walking. And just rehearsing saying that a thousand of times. How, how can I say it? How can I say it in a way that my father. Sound like I mean it. And the story picks up in verse 20 that says, and he, so he decided, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go home. I know that that jar is going to be broken in front of me. I'm going to get yelled at. I'm going to get cursed at. I'm going to go home no matter what. In verse 20, here's what it says. But while he was still a long way off, as he's making his way home, his father saw him and felt compassion 
and ran and embraced him and kissed him. That's the picture of mercy. That this father who were rebelled against saw him. That while he was a long way off, the father was looking out and he saw that son. He did not just see the son physically, but he saw the son in all of his rebellion, in all of his despair, in all of his desperation, running toward him and walking toward him. And this father saw him and felt something. He did not feel rage. He did not feel wrath. What he felt was he felt compassion. Compassion. The word compassion is this picture of someone stooping down. Stooping down to the person who are down there. I want you to picture the sun was down here in the ditch. He's stuck in a ditch. What the father could have done is this. He could have just throw a rope and said, get out yourself. Climb out of yourself. But you know what the father did when it said the father felt compassion? He did not throw a rope and expect the son to come out of himself. He stooped down and go, went down into the dish, carried his hand and bring him back up from the dish. That's what compassion looks like. He lowered himself to carry the son out of his misery. To carry him out of the place of darkness. We know the father lowered himself literally because we see the passage said this. Not only the father saw, saw him, felt compassion. It says the father ran to the son. No middle-aged man should be running unless they're in shape. Myself included. And definitely no middle, no, no middle aged man back then in the Middle East, in the ancient Middle East should run because there is a shame for them to run because what they need to do when they run is they need to raise their rope. And when they raise the rope, it exposed their legs. And in those days, that's a cultural no no. You don't never show off your legs. Not for a woman, not for a man, especially not for a rich man. And here is the father who, whom he, whom was rebelled against by his own son, pulled up his rope, start running all the while knowing that there's a chance he might fall flat on his face. And he was risking every one of, every, every honor that the village people would have been watching and paying attention to this father dash out there and start running out with, with reckless abandon because he saw his son, the one who rebelled against him, Coming home. The father lowered himself, picking up his, the shame of this man, this boy of his, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And brothers and sisters, that's what Jesus had done for us, isn't it? God, through his son Jesus, did not throw a rope and say, you get out of this yourself. You're the one who rebelled against me. Get up yourself. God, through his son Jesus, lowered himself, sent his own son to be 100% human being into this broken, messed up world. And he extended his hand and carried us out, dying on the cross, resurrected from, from the dead. He endured the cross. He disregarded the shame. Even though people were mocking him, he carried all that shame, all the heaviness, of sin for us so that we have a chance to receive his mercy. The father embrace him, kiss him, give him a way to restore. And you can just imagine all the people are probably coming out and seeing, here the time for us to, to, to curse this boy coming home. And as they saw the father embrace and kissing his son, they knew that ceremony would never happen because the father had carried the shame of the son And I want you to imagine the son being shocked, completely shocked of the father's reaction. And with whatever strength that he has, he uttered these words that he recited probably a thousand times on the way home. And he says this to the father, Father, 
I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And there was another line. If you go back to verse 9, he was about to say, treat me as one of your higher servants. But before he get those words out, notice what the father did. The father immediately stopped him right there and said, but tell the servants, bring quickly the best rope, put it on. Put the ring on his hand, put the shoes on his feet. Bring the fat and calf, kill it. We're going to party. We're going to celebrate. Because this son of mine was dead. He's now alive. He was lost, but he's found. And they began to celebrate. Look at the three things. The father brought a rope. Only wealthy people has rope back then. And if you remember the series that we just covered in Revelation, the garment is the entrance into the kingdom of God. And so the father clothed him with his own robe, the best robe he could find. Give him a ring which signified authority. And then he gave him shoes, sandals to wear because a servant does not wear sandals. Only sons get to wear sandals. So here we are, we see this son who was utterly rebellious towards his father. And now the father did not just withhold his wrath against him. But he went above and beyond and restored him back to be the son, the rightful son of this rich man. That's what mercy is about. Mercy is never just pulling us from negative to zero. Mercy is God taking us from the bottomless pit, bringing us to neutral, and on top of that, restored us as co-heirs with Christ, heirs of God. We do not deserve to be sons and daughters of God, but by the mercy of God, He brought us back and restored us. When we are at our absolute worst, broken and most vulnerable, God, what is most merciful? I love this quote by a 17th 17th century French philosopher. His name is Francois Felanon. He says, God's mercy takes pleasure in overcoming my unworthiness. God's mercy takes pleasure in overcoming my unworthiness. God takes pleasure when we are unworthy. And he shows all of his mercy to us. You better pay attention to that line because God just turned off the light and turned it back on. Let me run it back again. When we are most vulnerable, when we are at our ver- a worst, God was the most merciful toward us. And what a beautiful picture of what mercy is. What a beautiful picture that while we lay bare in utter sinfulness and guilt, God said you're loved if you just return home. I believe there are two responses for us as we look at this story. One of which is to those of us who may be non-Christians. Here's a response that you need to have as non-believers. To receive this grace. The response you need to have is one of repentance. One of coming home. That's what the son did. The son in Luke chapter 15 verse 18 says this. He admitted that he was wrong. That he had sinned against the heaven. He had sinned against the father. And as such he returned home. I want to speak straightly to some of us here. I believe that any other church, and our church included, there are some of us who've been in a Christian household. There are some of us who've been coming to church. There are some of us who've been reading the Bible. There are some of us who's been doing the Christian thing, and yet we've never come home. Never be deceived that you're returned home just because your family is Christian. Not everybody's because you're doing the Christian thing. Perhaps you're doing the moral thing. Perhaps you're, you're getting the community that you want. You're, you're getting life insurance that you think you're getting. But never once actually felt that you have sinned against God. And the way home began with admitting that you sinned against. You rebelled against God. You rebelled against the Father. And as such, you repent and come home. Jesus said, come home. Come home. You've been, tired. You've been out there long enough. Perhaps that famine never come around yet. But rest assured, it will. 
So come home. Because the Father is waiting for you. Come home. He's waiting for you. And so when you return, He is running toward you and embrace you, kiss you, to restore you to, uh, because you put your faith in Him. Motel 6 has this famous motto. It says that we're going to leave the light on for you. Because they expect you to come. But I think our God, the God of mercy has a better line. That he will leave the light of forgiveness for you because he's waiting patiently for you to return home. He longed for you to return home. So in a minute or so, I'm going to pray for us. I have one more point and I'm going to speak to those of us who are Christians. But after that, I'm going to pray for us. I want to, if you want to put your faith in Christ, I want to join me in the receiving Christ, surrendering your life back to him. And as such, he will restore you to have a perfect relationship with the Father. So that's a response for those of us who are non-believers. But for those who are, of us who are believers, I want to encourage you and exhort you to do two things. One is start looking back. One is to start looking back and not only start looking around. I'm convinced that as believers, our problem was never a doing problem. Because many of us know what we ought to do. The problem that we have is a seeing problem, an eye problem. That we don't see to the reason why we ought to live out the way that Christ has commanded us to. Or we don't see to it that we actually do the work that Christ has called us to do. So the first thing we need to do is is if we want to live a life that is worthy of the gospel. If we truly receive mercy from God, then we need to look back in what God has done in our lives. Romans chapter 12 verse 1 says this. Here's the way for you to live for Jesus. Here it says, therefore I urge you, it is an NIV, brothers and sisters, In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you, to God. How do we offer our body? How do we live sacrificially for God? This verse tells us we need to look back. We need to look back at what God has already done for us. We need to look back at the mercies of God. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, go read Romans chapter 1 to 11. That, that whole, those 11 chapters are the mercies of God that have shown upon you and I as we put our faith in Christ. So the only way for us to live righteously for God, the only way for us to live uh, glorifying Christ is by looking back at the mercies of God. If you want, to make a, you want to live a life full of sacrifice for God, look back at the mercies of God. If you want to love Jesus, remember what he has done for you. So that's the first thing I want you to do. Make it a habit to look back. That's what we're doing here in Luke 15. We're looking back at what God has done, how God has saved you in your rebellion and brought you, restored you back. We need to make a habit of that daily to preach the gospel to ourselves by looking back. But before you go quickly and go look back and then you realize, oh, I need a sacrifice for God. Many of us made the mistake of thinking that sacrifice for God is primarily a vertical orientation. Meaning that I only live my life for God this way between me and God. But we see from scripture clearly in many places, one of which I'm going to show you, is that while sacrifices are vertically oriented primarily, it is horizontally expressed. What I mean by that is, yes, we need to offer our sacrifices to God, to God, for God, but we do that by doing to others what God has done for us. So not only do we need to look back at what God has done for us, we need to look around to the people around us, those who are in need, so we can be Christ for them as Christ has been for us. I want to turn quickly here to Matthew 25. Matthew 25 here, Jesus talking about the end time when he would separate the sheep from the goat. His sheep represent the righteous people, and the goat represent the people who are away from God. And we know from that, from that passage that the righteous, the sheep, will be with God forever, and those who are goat, who are apart from Christ, will be in eternal damnation for, uh, in, in hell. But I want to focus on what, how Jesus identified those who are righteous. Because here, what it says to those who are righteous, and, and the righteous ask him this question, it says this, the righteous will answer Jesus saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when do we see you as a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And then Jesus the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You see that? 
sacrifices to Jesus and God always express the horizontal. Jesus said, you never see me and did these to me, but because you do it to those who are hungry, to those who are thirsty, to those who are stranger, who are no home, who are naked, to those who are sick or in prison, both literally and metaphorically, and he under, and put it, sum it all up as those who are the least of you, the lowliest, the broken, the most vulnerable of you, when you do that to them, that is what you have done for me. We want to be the sheep, don't we? Man, we love to be a sheep, to be with God forever and reign forever. But I don't know if you know, sheep is not the smartest animals on earth. They are definitely not one of the sharpest tools in the shed. In fact, when God made sheep, sheep has this superpower of being able to see things really, really far away and because of the way that their pupil works is a rectangular pupil, they actually, when they look up and see far away, they can actually see this panoramic shot of his surroundings. So what that means is they can see both front and almost completely to the back. They can see almost a 360 degree view of it, their surrounding. And that's a great power to have, isn't it? But here's the problem for many sheep. When they eat, they tend to just look down and eat. And so while they have this amazing power to be able to have this 360 degree of view around, around, around uh, the sheep, when they eat, they're so focused on looking down that all they see, that 360 view is no longer front and back, but it's bottom to top. And what they see oftentimes is just what is in front of them and they have no idea what's around them. And there are instances true story, instances of sheep looking down and focusing on their eating so much that the sheep next to them got snatched and got, and got killed and the sheep will keep eating and not faced by that because they are so consumed with what they're doing on their own and for themselves that they have no idea what's around them. Man, that is perhaps a true picture for many of us. That is sheep. So Often we are focusing on what's in front of us down here, perhaps even literally on our phone or metaphorically in our lives that we're so into what we are doing that we forgot to look around and look, lift our head up to look around us. God has given us this sight, the ability to look around the people around us, the least of us among us, Jesus said, show acts of mercy to them. Because when you do, you are really doing that to me. I want to end on this word. Another, a word for religion in Latin is regalio. It has the root word ligare. If you look at the word ligare, what it really means is it connects. It binds. It joins. To which we also get the word ligament from the word ligare. You know ligaments, joints, bones to bones, connect the bones to keep our body moving. And I think of about true religion. What a picture that is. True religion is really binding us, connecting us to God. But I don't think true religion, according to the Bible, is just connecting us to God. Just as the ligaments connect bones to bones, God calls us as we're connected and binded with him to do likewise for those around us, the least among us, the lowliest among us, the most ostracized among us, to connect them so that they can be connected with God. But we cannot do that unless we start looking back into the mercy that God has shown our lives. And we cannot do that if we're just looking down, but we're not looking around to those who are least among us. So let's pray together. For those of us who have never come home, and so you hear this story, you, you resonate with the son and, and realize that you have rebelled against your father and you want to come home. I'm going to pray. I'm going to lead you in a word of prayer and I want to ask you to pray along with me to admit to repent, and to return home to the Father because I know that the Father is longing for your return. 
You can pray along in your heart, and, and as long as you mean it, our Father is, is hearing your, listening to your prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy. God, I know that I have rebelled against you. I've wandered away from you to a far, far country. But God, I want to return home. God, I know that I've sinned against you. I have declared independence away from you. I want to do things my own way, but God, I know that way is not the best way for my life, and I want to return home. I want to come back to you. So God, I know what I've done was wrong, so I want to turn my life around. God, I believe that your son had died on that cross for my sin, so now in exchange, I can be with you, be with you and I can be your sons again or daughters again. So God, I want to surrender my life to you, Will you be merciful to me? God, I'm coming home. I want to put my faith in you, in your son, Jesus. I want to give up control of my life and trust that you know what's best for my life. So God, I, I, I pray these things because these are the truth of my heart. These are real, how I really feel toward you. So will you receive me as your son and as your daughter? In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. God, I want to pray for those of us who are believers. God, this week, help us to look back. Help us to be mindful to see your mercy in our lives. Though our sins are many, but your mercy is more. And I pray that we will look up, that we will no longer look down into our own things, that we will look around, because indeed there are so many who are the least around us. So help us, God, not to be just messenger of truth, but help us to be minister of mercy into this broken and anxious world. So God, thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.